uh, welcome back. We're still looking together at themes from the book of Acts and our studies together on Sunday morning. And our focus today is going to be on, once again, the life of the Apostle Paul, which we started last time. Uh, Paul, of course, is the name by which he is best known, but as we saw last time, that was not his birth name. He was Saul. He was from the city of Tarsus, so we call him Saul of Tarsus. And last Sunday, we focused on who he was prior to his close encounter of the Jesus kind. And I offered an acrostic to help us remember some things about him based, again, upon his Christian name. And, and there it is. The final letter, I'll note, the L, stands for learned. He was a man of high scholarly privilege and attainment, really quite different from the other apostles of Christ who were much more blue-collar characters. Uh, the, the Paul, or the P in Paul, stands for persecutor, and then related to that is the A for antagonistic. We meet Saul around the stoning death of this wonderful brother by the name of Stephen. We read of how Saul was obsessed with punishing these crazy Jesus people. Why was he so obsessed? Well, Saul was an extraordinarily principled and passionate man. For him, following the will of God, uh, he was following the will of God as he understood it, with zeal and with courage. In Acts 26, 9, he said, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. The third letter in our acrostic was the U, and that stands for uncompromising. He thought, or unbeliever, I should say, unbeliever. He thought Jesus was a phony and a fraud. And when you combine that belief with his courage and his passion and his leadership ability, you end up with Saul of Tarsus, the leading persecutor of his day. And this guy was totally into his presumed calling to be God's avenger. So that brings us to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, one of the most wonderful passages in all of scripture. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers, so he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women. Sometimes people think Paul was hostile to women, but as you see, he was treating them. He was an equal opportunity persecutor. He was after men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Paul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Now, we read this story three times in the book of Acts. Here it is told by the author Luke. The other two times it is told by Paul himself in chapters 22 and 26. In those chapters, we get some additional detail not included here. Paul tells us there that he was hit by the light around midday, and he said the light that he saw was brighter than that midday sun, and it shone all around him. Saul also, we learn, was not alone. He was leading a team on this mission to 
Damascus. His companions, he said, saw the light, heard the voice, but they did not understand what the voice was saying. Now that's interesting. Saul, as for him, he had a conversation with the voice. He did not see a human form, just a light, and that was the last thing that he saw with his pre-Christian eyes. The voice calls his name out twice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and I expect this all happened very fast, but Saul likely understood immediately when this light said, why are you persecuting me, that he was in, uh, he was in trouble. Why are you persecuting me? Now, he might have said to the light, I I'm pretty sure I haven't persecuted you. I, I, I would remember you. But no, Saul was not feeling defensive at this point. He simply asked the question, who are you, Lord? The Greek word for Lord is the word kurios. Kurios. Uh, it was the earliest confession of the Christian church to simply say, Yesu ho kurios, Jesus is Lord. The word means king, ruler, master. It was the most common name, in fact, that was used for God. Saul is saying, I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, <laughs> you are Lord. Yep. Then the voice replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, now think about that for a minute. Where is Jesus at this point in time? Where is he? We say it in the Apostles' Creed. He was seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Could Saul persecute Jesus? No. Could he even lay a hand on Jesus? No. Who was Saul persecuting at this point in time? It was the followers of Jesus, the believers in Jesus. But Jesus so identifies with his followers that he says if you persecute them, you are essentially then persecuting him. Now let's go down that road for a minute. I think it's very important. A couple of scriptures to look at. One is in Matthew chapter 25. It's a judgment day scene with the king on the throne. Chapter 25 verse 34. Come, he says, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, wh wh what are you talking about? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And you see the same thing here that we see in Acts chapter 9. Jesus is saying that if you're dealing with somebody who is his brother or his sister, if you're relating to a Christian, how you treat them is how you treat him. Because he identifies with us. One more story on this. In John chapter 21, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he carries on this amazing and very gracious conversation with Simon Peter. You'll recall, of course, that Simon Peter had denied the Lord three times before his crucifixion. 
And this is after the resurrection, and Jesus meets with him and gives him three opportunities to reaffirm his love. Simon, Simon, do you love me? And Simon Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And what does Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Simon, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Tend my lambs. A third time, Simon, Simon, do you love me? And it says, Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus looked at him again and said, feed my sheep. You see, Jesus was preparing Peter for his departure. The Lord would, be, would not be around much longer for us to demonstrate our love to him directly. How do you serve Jesus now that he is in heaven? You do it by serving, by loving his people. That's how we serve Christ now, by serving one another. Lone Christians, detached from the body of Christ, have a hard time doing that. But those who do serve the Lord's people are serving Christ. And that's an awesome, awesome truth. Now back to the Saul story. Saul was a quick study in Acts chapter 22, verse 10. He says that he, his response to the Lord was, what shall I do, Lord? Saul, the Christ hater, just did what? He called Jesus Lord. He called Jesus Lord. He did more than that. He put himself under his authority. He asked for directions. Here is the word I would use to describe this moment in Paul's life and in the history of the world. Boom! <laughs> Boom! This is dramatic and huge and transformative. The man's world just blew up, turned around, and was completely changed. Our Jesus. Our Jesus, brother and sister, friend, he is a transformer. He makes the dead live. He makes the blind see. He makes the deaf hear. He makes the lame to walk. He makes the foolish wise. He makes the evil good. He makes the haters love. And all of that comes about when he, Jesus, becomes a person's Lord and master. So in Acts 9 and verse 8, Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. Let me note, the man Saul picked up off the ground was not the same man that fell to the ground. You get that? This was a different man who got off the ground than the one who fell on the the ground. He went down one thing and he got up something different. Later this man would write in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And as we will see, Saul now has a new life. He has a new mission. He has a new power. He has a new family. He has a new message. He has a new enemy. He has a new destiny, all of which came with having a new Lord. Now, he hadn't figured that out yet. We know it, but he hadn't figured that out yet. At this point, all he knows is that he has been abducted by one vastly more powerful than he, and he is blind. But he also does seem to grasp that he has a new Lord, whom he dare not, dare not oppose. So Saul heads on into Damascus. After three days in the dark, he is approached by a man named Ananias who was probably a leader among the believers in Damascus. 
chapter 9, verse 10. Let's look there. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, and then he does one of those things we do where we try to explain things to God. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now what a role Ananias got to play. And not an easy one. Saul was the last person on the planet that Ananias wanted to have an intimate conversation with. But the Lord sent him to Saul, and so, not caving into his fear, he went. And what did Ananias do when he arrived at the home where Saul was staying? Well, he restored his sight. First of all, well, God restored his sight, but Ananias called on God to do that. And then verse 17, Ananias went and found Saul, laid his hands on him, and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a good day. Paul receives the blessings of the new covenant. He is baptized by the Spirit as Ananias prayed. And then after that, he is baptized in water as well. So he gets his sight. He's baptized by the Spirit. He's baptized in water. And finally, he gets a commission. It's not altogether clear what Saul heard direct from the lights and the voice of the Lord and what he heard from Ananias. But when we put it together... We get uh, basically, when you put together the three accounts and acts of his calling, here's what you get. First, call, Saul is called to, to know and teach the mysteries of the gospel. Specifically noted that he was take his teaching about Jesus to the Jews and the Gentiles and the kings. Now, the latter two would be somewhat surprising. Secondly, Saul is called to be persecuted but protected. Persecuted but protected. What a switcheroo that would be. The hunter becomes the hunted. God told Ananias Saul would suffer much for his name's sake. He told Saul the same. Look at this word from uh, God to Saul, chapter 26, verse 17. I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. There is so much in those two verses we just read. But the first thing you see is God promised him a rescue. Now think about that. That's a nice promise, but the implication of it is not an especially cheery one. Behind the promise to rescue is the presumption of what? That Saul will be pursued and attacked 
by Jews and by Gentiles, which he certainly was to an extraordinary degree. The life to which this man was being called was not an easy life. But has there ever been a life of deeper purpose and impact? He would influence plenty of Jews, to be sure, but especially Gentiles in the most, the most important way. The one who just made Saul blind and then restored his sight would use him to open spiritual eyes for many thousands in his lifetime and since then by his writings, millions of others. That's one thing the gospel does. It opens eyes. It also transfers one from Satan's realm into Christ's kingdom. It provides pardon and then it places someone into God's family. That's all. <laughs> And this is what Saul was called by God to do. A week earlier, he was the chief persecutor. Now, he is an apostle of Christ. He now has a new life. He has a new Lord. He has a new mission. He has a new message. He has a new power, which he found in the Holy Spirit. Okay. This is just fabulous. Our Lord Jesus Christ the king and head of his church, looked around for a man who could articulate and defend the gospel. He looked around for a man who could write the most important letters that would ever be written. He looked for a man who could establish and build churches, for a man who could endure hostility and hardship, and he decided that he had better call Saul. I'll let that sit there for just a second. <laughs> I will, uh, by the way, when did he call him? One obvious answer is Acts chapter 9. But if you look at Galatians 1.15, we read this. Even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. This is reminiscent of the call of Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah this, chapter 1, verse 5. Do we have that verse? Yeah. Uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so he did for Saul. This is the way that God works. Not everybody... Not everybody's going to have a story like Paul's, not at all. No one else in Acts gets converted the way Paul gets converted. God's purposes for each of us are distinct. But here's the cool thing. The Lord was and is at work in your life preparing you for the purposes that he has for you. Even before you knew it, your past made you who you are. Some parts were pleasant, some parts were not. But who is the Lord of that past? The one who called you to serve him right where you are. For me, God prepared me for years to be Beth's husband and to be Sharon's dad and to be North Park Church's pastor. And then the Lord does this other cool thing. He equips us at the time that we need it. Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit without whom he could do nothing. Saul, he's unique in certain ways, but in certain other ways, he is simply an example of how God moves in each and every one of his servants. 
So one thing you must see is where the initiative lies. How did Saul become the apostle to the Gentiles? How'd that happen? Did he answer an ad on churchstaffing.com? Something like this that says, Wanted, one lavishly trained biblical scholar with thick skin and a taste for adventure to advance Messiah's kingdoms into Gentile lands? Well, I'm being sort of silly, of course. How much of the initiative, listen, how much of the initiative towards apostleship did Saul own? How much of it was his? <laughs> that would be a negative number, right? <laughs> that would be a negative number. He made himself the least likely candidate in the land. But God had it planned all along and said, that, that is my man. He did not invite Saul to apply. He just went and got him. Now, I suppose we could argue that Saul had a choice, but I don't think Saul really saw it that way, do you? I don't think it would ever cross his mind to think that he had chosen Jesus. In the very autobiographical third chapter of the book of Philippians, there in verse 12, he says this, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And that's an interesting way to put it, right? I was laid hold of. It's like Jesus came down with one of those claws, just sort of plucked him up and said, you're going to be mine. I was laid hold of by the Lord. I like the old King James translation of that. It says, I, I, if I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. Now, we typically use that word apprehend in what context? We think that the criminal was apprehended by the FBI or something like that. But Saul was apprehended of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereignty of our God is so clear throughout his life. There's just no way to avoid it or deny it. But since we are all, according to Ephesians, dead in trespasses and sins, if we ever come alive spiritually, we must know that that is, was the Lord's doing. Indeed, Paul said exactly that, 1 Corinthians 1.30, where he says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And that means, of course, that all the praise goes to the Lord. It also means that we are secure in Him. He began it. He will bring it to completion. Not against our will, no, no, but through our will, by changing our will, even as He did for Paul. Before he met Jesus, this man, totally hostile, totally hostile, after he knew the Lord, he was totally in love with his Savior, and he was willing to go anywhere, do anything, suffer any humiliation to please Jesus. Let's look at a few more things from Acts 9 before we wrap up. Verse 19, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priest? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus could not refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot, so during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. More transformation of Saul's life seen here. Immediately, he changes teams, doesn't he? 
<laughs> this was severe. <laughs> I mean, imagine a player in the National Football League gets traded and his trade goes, it's a, it's a, it's a Baltimore Raven, isn't that sad they lost? Baltimore Raven uh, gets traded to the Steelers and the trade goes into effect at halftime. And so in the first half, he plays for the Ravens, and then he goes in the other locker room, changes uniforms, and comes out playing for the Steelers. That's basically, this was much more dramatic than that. Saul is now friends with the people he set out to destroy. And Jesus does this for us. Those crazy Christians that we used to despise, they're now precious to us. Then Saul starts preaching right away. All, all of his learning is now directed toward the fame of Christ's name instead of the eradication of Christ's name. He wanted to get rid of Christ's name. Now he wants everybody to know it. And everyone, it says, was amazed. And, and that Old Testament that he'd studied for so long, oh my goodness. Saul now saw Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. The blinders were off, and, and then he finally went from persecutor, from, uh, he went from persecutor to persecuted. The people with whom he previously identified were now out to kill him because they recognized that Jesus had no more powerful, undeniable, inexplicable witness than this man. Saul was going to make it very uncomfortable for them to oppose Jesus now. As a result, he had to go. This is what darkness does when it cannot refute the truth. It seeks to silence it to snuff it out, and they would have, could have, except that God keeps his promises. That promise he made to rescue him from the Jews and the Gentiles so that he could continue to turn many from darkness to light and from Satan to God. Because God does rescue Paul, we have one more sermon on the life of Paul that we will get to next week. That is still ahead for us. But listen today by just celebrating the transforming power and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, let, we finished last week singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Transformation. That's what our Lord is about. I like this cartoon. transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. It's a wonderful thing. But it cannot be compared to what Saul experienced when his life totally flipped and he found instantly he had a new Lord, a new life, a new mission, a new power, a new family in Jesus. What a Savior we have who looks at someone who is his bitterest enemy and decides to make him a beloved child, a friend, a fellow heir of all things. All the more reason to serve our King gladly and tell of him hopefully. You might not be a Saul, but who knows, you could be an Ananias who is sent to welcome such a one into the family of faith. As we said last time, if our Lord can do this with Saul, there is no one too far gone for the long arm of saving mercies. Maybe that speaks to you. Maybe you came in today far 
from God. Our Savior is reaching out to you. Latchel. And as we close in prayer, I invite you, my brothers and sisters, to think of someone you know who seems far from God, who seems very unlikely to ever bow the knee to Jesus. Could be a family member. Could be a person of influence, a person of some fame. Could be a co-worker. But let's take a minute to pray that our Lord would rescue some souls in our generation and turn them into preachers of the gospel of grace. Let's call out to God. Give you a minute to pray about whoever's on your heart, and then I'll lead us before the Lord. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that the dead come alive, the blind come to see, the deaf get to hear, the lame get to walk. We thank you, Lord, that you turn doubters into believers, haters into lovers. You turn persecutors into apostles. We pray that you'd be at work in our day and age, that we would see you raise up some Apostle Pauls out of some Saul's. And God, use us, whether we become Saul's ourselves or whether we take on the role of Ananias. But God, use us to lead people into this transforming relationship, these close encounters of a Jesus kind that make all the difference in the world. We pray that we would trust your power and your love to hear our prayer as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.